from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show on time, how we can make better use of the time we have, and how can we have enough time for the things that matter most. Helping us figure this out today is going to be um, author, data geek, working mom of four under eight, and expert in time management, Laura Vanderkam. And our phones are open at one eight four four wharton That's 844-942-7866. And if you have questions for Laura or wisdom to share on how you make time work for you, please give us a call. We would love to have you join the conversation. And I'm particularly excited that Laura is joining us today, not only because I am perennially fighting with time um, and how to make it work for me. But she's also a fabulous guest. She was here a couple of years ago when her last book came out, and she has a new one coming, Off the Clock, Feel Less Busy While Getting More Done. Um, she's written these really insightful and helpful time management and productivity books, which include I Know How She Does It, What the Most Successful People Do Before Breakfast, and 168 Hours. Her work has appeared in publications that include The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, and Fortune. And she's the co-host with Sarah Hart Unger of the podcast Beth Best of Both Worlds. She blogs almost daily at lauravandercan.com and her TED Talk, How to Gain Control of Your Free Time, has been viewed more than six million times as of this morning. So given all that, we couldn't be more grateful that she's here sharing her time today. So Laura, welcome back to Women at Work. Thank you so much for having me back. Great to be here again. So Laura, as I was reading your book, you know, and I was prepared to go, like I was going to the well of wisdom. And I found a different kind of wisdom there than I expected, that it wasn't just like, here's some practical things to think about. It really felt like a philosophy book, like you were giving me a new way to think. What motivated you to write this? Well, I have long been fascinated by those people we all know who seem to have a lot going on in their lives, yet who feel remarkably calm about time. <laughs> like when you talk to them, they feel, you know, they come across like they have all the time in the world. Like they are just focused on whatever they are doing. They're having a conversation with you. They're not racing off somewhere else. And I wonder, well, what are their secrets? How can they be like that? If we're all so busy, 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 how can they maintain this level of calm, this sort of approach to time? Uh, and so for off the clock, I decided to try to figure that out, um, both through data analysis and also through interviewing people, too. So talk to me about your data analysis, and especially for our listeners who are new to your work. How do you learn about time? Well, you can always ask people how they spend their time, but the problem is we all have these stories that may or may not be true about how <laughs> we spend our time. And so I think you really got to go to the data. So I have people track their time for me. Um, in, in previous books, I've had them do a whole week. For this particular one, I had uh, over 900 people track their time for a day. It was just a normal March Monday, so like a regular work day. I uh, had them track the whole day, and then I asked them questions about how they felt about their time. Uh, so I could give people scores based on whether they felt time was sort of scarce, 
they felt rushed, stressed, like they never had enough time for the things they wanted to do, or people who had high time perception scores who felt time was abundant, who felt relaxed about time, who felt they had time for the things they wanted to do. I want to back up for half a step. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that I didn't, you know, I knew that you had a system for tracking time that you used, that you started out when you first started writing these books. And it's interesting to see that you track time anew with each book that you're studying. How's it different book to book? Well, I, um, you know, I try to figure out what's going to work best for the, the project I'm working on. I track my own time um, personally on weekly spreadsheets that just go from 5 a.m. Monday to 5 a.m. Monday. I've actually been doing that for about three years now. Um, but I don't make anyone else do that. <laughs> I'm collecting data. Uh, the most I'd ever ask for is a week, and, and for some projects I just ask for a day. So in the tracking process, um, I just want to break it down a little bit. Is it that um, are you right? In what intervals are you tracking time and why? So I usually track in half hours. For off the clock, I had people report in hours. So they had 24 entries um, for March 27, 2017, which was the day that they tracked. Uh, and, and they just filled in what they were doing. And, and so then we, um, my research team and I could analyze keywords from there um, to see you know, how many hours people were working, for instance, sleeping, um, in the car or other forms of transit, exercising, watching TV or Netflix or whatever it was. You know, we had all <laughs> right. sorts of keywords we looked at um, so, so that we could figure out where, where the time really went. So as you were tracking all of this, um, did you find something about the people who were calm? Is there, was there something different in their time use patterns? Well, there were, and there were a couple interesting things, um, some of which may not have been so obvious. I mean, one thing that wasn't so different is that people who felt starved for time, who were, you know, so stressed and rushed and all that, weren't working all that much more than anyone else. <laughs> so that was an explanation that was off the table, uh, which, is, which is good to know. I mean, I feel it's a lot of this is mental. It's not necessarily what's objectively going on in your life. Um, but one th uh, two things I found. One is that people who felt like they had more time were highly likely to have done something very interesting on that March Monday. Uh, so you think about how most of us might spend a Monday. You kind of go to work, you come home, you eat dinner, watch TV, go to bed. These people were doing other stuff. Like so they, We had someone who went uh, to salsa dancing lessons on a Monday night, like uh, someone who surprised their family with uh, movie tickets for the evening, uh, you know, people who would even just like take the family for a walk after dinner. But, but something that was not, you know, the normal. Or, or something that wasn't the routine of functioning. Something that wasn't the routine that what you would think of for a normal March Monday. Right. They were want-to-dos, not have-to-dos. These were want-to-dos. And what, the, what it is is that, you know, when we often say, like, oh, where did the time go? What we're saying is that I don't remember where the time went. But by putting memorable things into your life, you create more memories, and that expands your experience of time. Uh, Laura, so i got to tell you, that yeah. was something that in the book struck me on, on a really kind of personal and emotional level. You know, as I was reading through that section and I was thinking about those years when my daughter was particularly young, I felt particularly frenzied juggling work and um, a toddler who was sick all the time, and and I had recently realized, I think of those years, and I don't remember a lot of them. And I'm wondering, like, was I brain dead? Was I sleep deprived? And you raised for me the question of, it's not that I wasn't there. It's that I don't, I may not have documented memories or know how to hook into them so that I can remember it. 
Yeah, and and this can happen. Um, I mean, probably you were sleep deprived too. <laughs> let's, Without let's a doubt, not write that off as an explanation. I mean, certainly having young children and um, particularly children if they are sick a lot or things like that, any other needs that they have. I mean, it can be very difficult to to deal with time like that, and I totally get that. Um, and and you know, it's hard to sort of plan adventures into our lives if you're you know dealing with taking kids to the doctor or dealing with sick days and things like that. Um, but yes, no, this idea of putting memorable things into our time, having some answer to the question of why is today different from other days uh, is key to making us feel like we have more time. And, and it's always easier not to do those things. I mean, it's easier to just go to work, come home, have dinner, watch TV, <laughs> go to bed. But then those, those days are nothing, and, and there's no memory to hook into. Um, and, and so by creating memories, we create more time. And is there a way that... Um we can access those mem- like you talked about the value of journaling and photographs and um, different ways of documenting a putting more unusual novel things into our days so that they're hooks to remember them they're special but also um, processes that we go through that help cement them in our memories for those of us who were either tor- poor time managers lazy distracted or just didn't realize it was valuable how can we access some of those memories well you can go and try to see if there are artifacts facts of these periods of time um, somewhere in your life. Um, in many cases, there are other people who mm-hmm. experience these things with you. So you can try having a conversation with these people uh, about those times. Like, what do they remember? And, and you'll pull these memories out uh, if, if you're talking to someone about these things. Um, you know, sometimes it's smells or songs mm-hmm. uh, might conjure up certain feelings from this time or even you know, if there are any letters or old emails even or something like that. But just any sort of artifact can trigger that memory process. Um, and, and then the kind of cool thing is we can actually make memories stronger after the fact. The, the brain is capable of doing this if, if you work on it. Um, so if you really concentrate on time and sort of work on these artifacts, you, you can start to piece some of it back together. Now, obviously, you can't create really memories that weren't there in the first <laughs> right. place. You're not going to suddenly say, like, this When I vacation. went to Bali with my daughter, which I didn't do, right. Yeah, it's got to be real. Say, you're not going to magically conjure that up. <laughs> right. But you could probably come up with something. No, and as a testimony it to it, um, one of my colleagues is pregnant. We were talking about strollers. And so I started to think about the jogging stroller. And then all of a sudden, um, I remembered that one of the things I used to do with my daughter when she wasn't feeling well on a beautiful day is I would snuggle her into the jogging stroller and we'd go on these walking adventures. And it amused her. It got me some exercise. We got out of the house and she loved it. And like you said, I had totally forgotten about it until some other trigger brought it back to me. But it was also something novel. Yeah. And and so then once you think about it, you can start picturing the other images you might have had, like a, you know, beautiful sunny day or, you know, seeing your daughter playing at a park or something like that. I mean, you just, these are things that are there, um, but we have to work to pull them back out. But when we do pull them back out, suddenly that time expands in in our memory of it. That's the critical thing is that um, by not, by being present because we're doing something novel and having a way to hook into our memories of it. It's this amazing concept that I didn't think about until I started reading the book, that it makes time feel more bountiful. Yeah, no, I mean, that's all what it really is. Uh, time is not a straightforward thing. It's it's not just, you know, there one way, and that's the only way we t- deal with it. I mean, this is something we can actually 
choose how we interact with. Okay, so I have a. I want to apply this to kind of practical choices and you know some of the experience. Like my mother has teased me for years that I always try and put at least two more things in the day than I should. So I'm constantly frantic and late, but yet somehow getting to do do fun things and get things done. And um, I've been trying over the years to do that a little less because I can make other people around me crazy. And then I read a section of the book where you talked about a day where you went to Longwood Gardens, you went to New York, you brought the kids to your husband. Like you had this jam-packed day that I thought, how did you fit that all in? And weren't you exhausted? Could you talk a little bit about why you planned a day like that and what you discovered and learned from it? Well, there was nothing particularly about the day I wished to get rid of. <laughs> and, and, and so why, while it was a, a packed and in some ways difficult day, um, one of the things I talk about in Off the Clock is that we're really, when you think of the self, the self is really three selves. There's the experiencing self, which is sort of how we are in the moment. But there's also the anticipating self, mm-hmm. which is looking forward to things. And there's the remembering self, which is looking back on things. And, and so that particular day was tough on the experiencing self. Um, but so what? Because my anticipating self is looking forward to it, and my you know, remembering self is really glad I did all those things. I mean, I have good memories of that day of you know, Longwood Gardens, seeing the poinsettias. It was Christmas time, and it was sort of snowy, so it was this you know, bright red flowers against the snow. And went to a kid's wrestling meet, and it was his first wrestling meet, and he won his matches. And it was so exciting seeing his little hand up in the air. <laughs> And and then, you know, hearing this beautiful choir in New York, I mean, singing these fantastic Christmas songs, like by candlelight. I mean, what, that's what I think of the day. I don't think of the fact that I'm like driving in the fog on the, you know, Pennsylvania turnpike at 1 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. At 1 a.m. it wasn't great, but that went away in comparison to the other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And and so, I mean, sometimes we have to, I, I quote this um you know, philosopher, he talks about we, we pamper our, our experiencing self, we pamper our present selves like a spoiled child. And it's so true, if you think about it. Like, you know, we sum up like, oh, you know, I'd like to go to the art museum someday. And then it comes down to, you know, what what day are we going to do this? And I was like, well, you know, there's traffic, it's raining, I'm tired, I just got home from work. You know, there's, there's a million reasons the experiencing self doesn't want to do stuff. But if your anticipating self looked forward to it, and probably your remembering self will be happy you did it. Uh, maybe you can tell your experiencing self that it will enjoy parts of it, so get over it. I do that with myself with exercise, where, you know, the hardest part of exercise is actually, like, lacing up my running shoes or making it to the pool. And I have never once regretted exercising, but I have indulged my um, experiencing self often enough that I've let myself off the hook and then missed exercising. Yep. Well, that's <laughs> that's one reason we. Uh, and you know, you probably enjoy parts of it while you're doing it. I mean, you know, once you oh, get into it, you the, know, you, the, the first we, step. I'm happy. It's just the first step. The you third know, we, stroke we in the energy. pool. The yeah, first two are really cold, but after that, it's. I love it. Yeah. It's so just you getting have to remember there. that every time. Tell yourself, I'm enjoying this. <laughs> so when you experience yourself, it's like I don't want to go. So, but but we did enjoy it last time. <laughs> so, yes, talking to yourself in the plural is always fun. <laughs> <laughs> so how do we talk to ourselves about being late all the time? <laughs> well, being late about all the time is um, generally about being wildly optimistic. And I like that. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I'm a sort of ridiculously punctual person most of the time. I, I have this, I, sh- I show up comically early to social events and it's just awkward. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, usually what's happening is that people 
are thinking of how long something takes, but it's their estimate based on everything going right. Um, or maybe it happened once that it took that amount of time. Every other time it's taken a different amount of time, but they're going to remember that once. So you mean the first time I went to the train station from my house and made the train, it took 10 minutes, but I haven't factored in that most mornings between driving, parking, and walking across the platform at Ambler, it actually takes about 15 to 18 minutes. And yeah, I well, missed my train for two train. years. <laughs> yeah. So um, surprisingly enough. So, you know, I think... The the key thing is, you know, if it, if it bothers you that you are being late to things, that um, you just build in extra time. Um, you know, 15 minutes is fine for pretty much everyday activities. If it's a longer or uncertain, you can build in more. Um, but, you know, it's it's really about asking yourself, well, what could go wrong? And, and as, you know, building that into your estimates. Uh, one of the reasons I always encourage people to track time as it gives you more realistic estimates like it's pretty hard to keep telling yourself it takes 20 minutes to get to work when every single morning it takes 40 right um, if you actually clocked it <laughs> yeah you actually clock it you're like huh that's that's fascinating i've got five data points in a row that it took 40 minutes i could keep telling myself um it's going to take 20 minutes but i could also realize that that's why i'm always late for my <laughs> nine o'clock meeting by the way this is women at work on business radio on sirius xm 111 and i'm your host laura zarrow i'm talking with laura vanderkam author of the soon-to-be-released book, Off the Clock, Feel Less Busy While Getting More Done. If you have a question about what you're discussing, you'd like to get Laura's not only um, delightfully forgiving and enlightening take on how we use our time, but some real solutions to the challenges you face, give us a call. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So I want to hang on this question of you know how we actually budget our time so that we reduce our stress level is really what this is about so we can be present in what we're doing. So, you know, part of it is, yes, stop being wildly optimistic and figure out what could go wrong. But isn't there an upside if we wind up with 10 or 15 minutes to kill? Well, there certainly are. Um, I mean, you can use 10 or 15 minutes for all kinds of things. One of the best things you can do with that time is not delete emails. <laughs> don't, don't think that, you know, look at me. I'm deleting my email. Look how productive I am. Um, you can use 10 to 15 minutes for something like reflecting on your life. I found that um, the people who track their time um, for this, this book, people who felt like they had the most time engaged in reflective activities far more times per week than um, people who felt starved for time. And again, it's not that these people had more time, and so they had more free time, so they were able to find time to reflect. Um, the people who had low time perception scores spent more time watching TV. They spent more time uh, on social media than, than other people. Explain so really, what a time perception score is. A time, so I had everyone answer questions about how they felt about time uh, on a scale sort of from strongly disagree to strongly agree. Um, and these are sort of statements of, of time abundance, I guess, is how you put it. So, so questions like, you know, yesterday I felt present rather than distracted. Um, if you said a seven, that was strongly agree. And so there are a bunch of questions like this. And so people with higher scores uh, had, had a more abundant perspective on time. And so when you talk about reflecting, what form does that take? Is that prayer? Is it meditation? Is it journaling? Or is it just holding still? Well, it could be all of the above. Um, <laughs> any of those would be great options. Anything that causes you to pause and think about your life. 
Um, so, so all those things would, would count in that category. Prayer, obviously, is thinking about how life is and communing with a higher power about how your life is, how you would like it to be, the things you're happy about, the things you're not happy about. Um, but you could do that same thing in a journal, for instance. Uh, you're writing down pretty much, you know, what's going on in my life? What do I think about it? Do I like it? Do I not like it? Um, meditating is, is sort of a, a moment where you also pause and, and sort of step outside uh, the regular flow of life. And, and the reason this is important is because Time keeps passing whether we think about how we're spending it or not. And, and so it is so easy to spend time mindlessly, but then that contributes to feeling like we have no time. Whereas if we sort of step outside this river for just a minute, you know, like five minutes, you can think about where the river is going, what you, you know, how you wish to direct what you can, and, and that makes you feel like you have more time. So we're actually moving ourselves into a, a place of kind of more awareness and thus control over how we use our time by just stepping to the side for a minute to pause. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be much. I mean, we're really talking just a couple minutes a day. Uh, and, and like I said, it's not that these people have more time and therefore had the time to do reflective activities. It's just how you allocate your time. You can choose to watch TV or you could choose to sit and write in a journal. But I can tell you that one will make you feel like you have more time. Okay, so talk to me about this notion of wasting time. Well, I mean, I think <laughs> wasting time is a, is a very pejorative phrase, and I, I don't really like to use that all that much. I notice that it doesn't come up even though, like, I can hear my mother's voice, you know, admonishing me about it. Well, you know, we only get so much time, so I think from mm -hmm. that perspective, time is incredibly precious, and we want to treat it like the valuable resource it is. I think that things that are carefully and mindfully chosen to do with our time are probably not wasting time. Um, so, you know, if you really, really, really want to be on Instagram because this is the best way that you can see your you know, friend from college's new baby's picture, that is awesome. That is a great way to spend time. If you're just scrolling because you can't think of anything else to do and you're kind of low energy and you should go to bed, but you, you know, it takes energy to go to bed so you haven't done that yet, <laughs> right. you know, that, that's maybe more in the, in the wasting time and that, category. And that perhaps the better way to think about it, because I struggle with this, is there are certain habits that I have that are mindless, and then the, and, but they relate to things that I enjoy. Like, I don't wake up quickly. Um, I take my time in bed in the morning and I look out the window and I really enjoy it. Um, but at the same time, if I pick up my phone and get distracted with something, then I haven't enjoyed looking out the window. I'm stressed from looking at email and Instagram photos of people I haven't spoken to for 30 years and I didn't get out of bed to exercise. Yep. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, you know, people... We, we talked about the differences between people who felt stressed and people who felt relaxed about time. Uh, I found that people who felt the most relaxed about time looked at their phones about half as frequently as the people who felt most stressed. Oh, my God. Okay, so the phone is an important thing, but we're going to yeah. come back to it in a minute because we actually have an email that came in. Okay. And by the way, if anybody else would like to email in, you can reach us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And I'm Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Laura Vanderkam here on Women at Work on SiriusXM 111. You can also call in. Our number is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And um, give Patty a ring. So anyway, our first message comes in from my beloved Julie from Cinnaminson. I love that she always listens. Um, my husband says... I need to spend more time on myself and less time worrying about work and my employees. Easy to say, not so easy to do. What can you suggest? Well, I think this is a, a good point. He probably thinks that you're stressed and would like to see you happier. Uh, and, and I think investing in happiness is a, is a great way to spend time. It might help to make a list of things that you enjoy doing 
things that you find relaxing because often what's happening is we feel that we have no time so we don't even think of these things um, and so we just choose whatever is the most effortless fun in front of us which tends to be scrolling around online uh, <laughs> <Right>. so <laughs> make a list of the things you enjoy it could be hobbies you haven't done for a while or sort of like you know trips that are really close to where you are you know with an hour of where you live or restaurants you like people you enjoy hanging out with all these sorts of things and, and then challenge yourself uh, as you're planning your weeks um, to maybe put two or three of these things into your schedule. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be elaborate, but as you're planning your week and you're doing all this stuff for, you know, worrying about your employees, as you were saying, uh, maybe say, okay, well, I want to make sure that I go for a bike ride with Karen on the weekend and I'm going to make time for coffee with, um, you know, Bob. And so once these things are on your calendar, like they're far more likely to happen, but you have to think about them. Like you have to think that you want to do them and then make space for them and treat them as a priority in your week. You know, after I was reading some of the sections of the book about this, I realized I haven't seen my friend Jody in forever. So I called her and I said, I don't have time to talk. I miss you. I'm dying to see you. And we put a date on the calendar. And now my anticipating self is looking forward to seeing Jody. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> Hopefully Jody <laughs> was. Jody a priority for the week. <laughs> exactly. Hopefully jo- Jody was too. So, but along these lines, you reminded me of a story you told in the book about Dory Clark. Um, could you share with us what she learned about purposefully filling her time? Yeah, so I mean, Dory's a great um, writer about all sorts of business and career-related topics. Um, but so she had been spending all this time working, of course, is building her successful career. Uh, and she lived in New York, and she realized, like, she doesn't do anything except work. Like, what's the point of living in New York? <laughs> You're only you know, <laughs> right. going to be working. And so she challenged herself to have at least one uniquely New York adventure each week. Um, so she would think about, well, what could I do this week? Where could it go? Um, and, and would, like, work her way through this list. So she started researching stuff because she had this challenge to herself. She started researching ideas. She started, like, working her way through lists. Like, if somebody published a list of the best pizzerias, she'd try to visit all of them. Or something. <laughs> you know, but, but that sort of thing, when you've got a challenge and you've got a project, uh, you put more energy into it and more thought into it than if you're just sort of like, we should do fun stuff sometime. I mean, what does that even mean? Um, so, yeah, this, this uniquely New York event challenge got her to do all these things that have now created so many more memories of New York. Like New York itself is this landscape of memories, uh, and she had a lot more fun, too. Right, and it made this incredibly complex place real to her. Yeah, so, you know, anything you might think of to do is going to (laughs) shows or sardis or, you know, going to, like, Asian food markets out in Queens or something. But, you know, there's lots of uniquely New York things, so... Um, you know, it's a reason to choose that over watching Netflix. Absolutely. And it also connected the dots to if you do feel the need to scroll on your phone. Like she went to Time Out New York and Time Out um, publishes guides and magazines for cities all over the world. And it's an amazing resource to learn about a place and find your way to interesting, stimulating things. Yeah. So, I mean, having that as a reason to be online is also good. <laughs> like, you're, you know, you're online for a purpose of finding cool stuff to do in your real life. Um, which which tends to be more fun, even if it takes take effort, uh, than than the effortless fun. At least I got a huge boost just for shopping for a house in Maine for vacation. Well, there you go. It got it helped me like pretend I was in Maine for two weeks, and it was the middle of January. Which 
yeah. I mean, well, Maine was probably cold then, too, but you're thinking about the summer, yes. In my mind, Maine was, you know, 68 degrees and sunny. Anyway, we're going to take a short break, and when I get back, Laura and I will continue our discussion um, about how we use our time, how we make our time matter, um, so that we can, you know, get the most out of it every day. Um, I'm Laura Zarrow. You're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111, and the phones will stay open while we're on break. So if you want to give Patty a call, give us a ring at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. You can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And Helen, I got your note. We'll take your question right after the break. Thanks so much. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how to get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. And today, I have the good luck of having Laura Vanderkam with us on the show. She's the author of Off the Clock, Feel Less Busy While Getting More Done. Um, her new book, it's being released on May 29th, so that's Tuesday of next week. Highly recommended it. I have to tell you, just reading it for today's show, it gave me a new way that I've been thinking about um, how I'm spending my time while working, how I'm spending my time in between work, um, and hopefully it will for you too. So anyway, Laura, welcome back to Women at Work. Thanks for having me. So we were talking about our beginning conversation had kind of two big threads to it. You know, I feel like there's this philosophical framework that you're giving us for how we think about our time and then practical strategies for how we can put that to use. I would say that's correct. <laughs> so yeah, one of the... we want to think about it and then, but you know, you think about it, you also have to live your life too. So, so I have a question along those lines. Um, you know, in this struggle to feel like we have more time, that we can be more present in the time that we have and not feel so friendly, frenzied. How does the timing of what we do affect that? Well, um, I think we want to be careful to put the things that demand the most energy um, at the time of day when we have the energy to deal with them. I think one of the things that makes people feel constantly behind and harried is that they're um, attempting to do things when they aren't really capable or as capable of, of doing them. Uh, if you think about like a really difficult assignment, um, you know, if you, after that first cup of coffee and you kind of take on the world, it might take you an hour. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you're really distracted by the end of the day, dealing with other things coming in, plus you're tired, uh, it could take two hours or more as you keep going back and forth to your inbox and other things. Uh, so, so that right there could add an hour to your day if you're not careful. And so when you, in tracking your own time, did, did, how did you learn about when you were most productive? Well, I can certainly see on my own logs that in the morning I can work for a long time. Like I can crank out drafts of articles or book chapters or whatever it is. Um, Mid-afternoon, that is not really the case. <laughs> I'm just, uh, you know, I find myself reading the same emails over and over again. Next time, oh, somebody posted a photo on Facebook. Let me go check that out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, very easy to disappear down these Internet rabbit holes. Uh, which is what's happening is, you know, my brain needs a break, and if I don't 
go and give it a real break, it's going to find another way to take one, um, whether <laughs> I, I like that or not. Uh, so it's so better to come up with a real break, something that would actually add to my energy. That's a good way of putting it because I've been having this struggle where I see that, um, like you said, in the morning, ready to rock and roll. Um, if I work at home and I sit down with my coffee, I'm amazed at what I crank out. But I come into the office and I visit my staff and I check in on how everybody's doing and I answer a few emails. And before I know it, the morning's gone. I've gone to a lunch meeting. I come back to my desk. And like you said, I'm looking at the same email five times. I'm exhausted. Yeah, that, it's it's definitely something to think about. And so I've interviewed people who have, you know, maybe even not in, gone into the office first thing. Uh, like if there's focus work they have to do and they're managing whole staff who, so of course, want to talk to them, um, maybe come in a little bit later. Um, and so then once you're in the office, you've already done whatever the important focus thing is you need to get done. Uh, so, so you're able to relax when people come and bring you their issues and want to talk to you about what's going on. The other thing that that kind of dovetails with is I noticed in my own kind of rhythm of the day that I get energized during that slump by interaction with my team, that um, I love the collaboration in the afternoon. I love explaining things, talking about ideas, learning from them. Um, and it actually brings me back to life. Um, so it's teaching me that maybe, like you said, do the desk work in the morning, do the social work in the afternoon. Yeah, you can figure out I mean, what it is that you find energizing and then figure out a way to put it in. Um, obviously, you are probably a more extroverted person, and so talking with lots of different people energizes you. Uh, somebody who is more introverted might find, you know, three meetings in a row to be absolutely exhausting. <laughs> or a so form need, of hell. <laughs> yeah, so they need to go find a quiet place to, you know, read something or work on something quiet for a little bit to recruit, you know, regroup in order to then get back out and, and talk to people again. So part of it is both tracking what do we see our own patterns of where we're productive, where we're not, and then how do we tune into our own tendencies and impulses? Exactly. I mean, knowing yourself is always a big part of time management. I think like knowing ourselves is a big challenge overall, never mind time management. Um, one of the things that you talked about was um, you've written about how women can buy work in life and how people use time creatively to achieve their goals. Um, how do these things two overlap? How these two things overlap? Uh, well, you know, I've certainly seen a lot of creative use of, of time and, and women's schedules, men's schedules, too. Um, you know, when people need to work longer hours and yet also want to do things in their personal life, I, being flexible about when the work happens means you can work long hours and, you know, do other stuff, too. I mean, certainly something you see a lot of is um, people with young kids will leave the office at a reasonable hour, mm -hmm. go spend the evenings with their kids, do more work at night after their kids go to bed. Um, you know, some people say, oh, well, women will never work 10, 11, 12-hour days because they'd never see their families. It's like, well, they don't actually necessarily work it straight through. So they'll come home in the evening, hang out, then do the email and stuff later. Uh, and that's how people work those hours. Or maybe it's a Saturday morning shift uh, while the kids are doing something else. And, you know, if you think about it, if you work five hours on the weekend, you're aiming for a certain number of hours. That's an hour earlier you could leave every day during the week. I mean, so it's just being flexible about when things happen. Um, allows people to get more done. Also, I remember from the first time that we talked, and I, I was reading one of your books, and the aha for me was that people's reporting of an 80-hour work wasn't always accurate Oh, yeah, that's either. totally true. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I've seen, you know, there, there have been studies in the past, other studies finding that people... Uh, the the higher somebody claims their work week is, the more likely they are overestimating by a significant amount. Um, but I've collected lots of time logs over the years, and I've collected time logs from people in 
companies, organizations that are known for their extreme hours. You know, the places people talk of as being like white collar sweatshops and all that. I've, you I've mean done... where on their homepage they say we work and play hard? Yeah, well, something <laughs> like that. Uh, but, you know, I've done talks in a lot of these companies, and I often have people collect, you know, track their time beforehand so I can make sure that everyone knows that I'm not, you know, just making this up. I'm looking at their colleagues' <laughs> schedules. And, yeah, I, they're, they're not 80-hour work weeks. I mean, they're, they're not. <laughs> No, and, you know, it's it they're not 40, but they're not 100 either. So, it's often, you know, in a lot of these kind of extreme job companies, you can aim for a long-term average of in the mid 50s of hours per week. And that's kind of a cool thing to think about if you're thinking about work-life balance, whatever that means, because there's 168 hours in a week. And so, if you sleep 8 hours a night or at least sleep in personal care or thinking of it as 8 hours a day, that's 56 hours a week. So maybe we work 56 hours, we sleep and do personal care for 56 hours, and then we have 56 hours for other things. And that's pretty much perfectly balanced. And that's, you know, in these big extreme jobs. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's just a different way of looking at it. It also reminds me, and I may have said this to you before, of when I went on Weight Watchers. And I learned, to that I had an allotment of points for the day. And when I started the day knowing I've got 23 points to consume like it's a budget, not a diet. It's not about what I'm not consuming. It's about how do I use what I have. Um, I found it became possible for the first time in my whole life to be satisfied, eat well. And at the same time, I lost 40 pounds in four months and I've kept it off for 15 years. But it was this fundamental difference of knowing what I was starting with and allocating it thoughtfully. And it sounds like it's the same. We can do the same thing with our time. Of course. Well, time is like any resource. Um, you can choose to allocate it in ways that work for you. And, and you know, similar to the Weight Watchers thing, I mean, you know, you only get so much. Uh, you're, you know, you can try to do 80 points a day, but that would have its own <laughs> right. you don't, you don't get, You don't even get that option with time. I mean, if you, once you allocate 24 hours, a day is done and over. Um, right, and, and you, you can't get that back. Can't get that back. Although we can conjure memories. We don't we want to forget that. memories, but uh, we can't get that time back. So, you know, I think we, it's all about spending it wisely, um, allocating it to the things that you care about, the people you care about care about, and uh, trying to get rid of the rest. Okay. So can I ask you a personal question? Sure. I mean, it's, this is a, a me question. I need your help. So I have a teenage daughter. I adore her. And I've noticed this funny kind of ebb and flow that um, when she was little, obviously, I said, you know, teeny tiny, she was sick for a long time. Fortunately, she got much better. Um and there was a way that parenting was intensive when she was small. And then as she got into elementary school and middle school, she kind of became more independent and needed me less in those same kind of time-intensive ways. And now that she's a teenager, she's emerging again. And it's not the same kind of daily care and feeding. She doesn't need me to give her a bath. But when she wants time, it's important. And I'm also acutely aware that she's going to leave soon and I don't want to lose those moments with her. Yet, it's like I have to learn all over again how to factor this into my schedule. Any advice? Well, I think the best thing you can do is leave open space. Um, and, of course, your your top hope for that time would be that she'd want to interact with you and, and enjoy that time together. Um, if that doesn't happen, here's X, Y, or Z other things that you might do at that time, right? You might read a good book, you might do a hobby, whatever that is, uh, you know, 
fun stuff in the kitchen or whatever you <laughs> right. like to do, you know. But um, and then you can also try to engineer moments where you know such interactions are more likely too. I mean, uh, you know, you're both just hanging out at the house; it may or may not happen. But maybe if you're in a car together, <laughs> that is more likely just because you're both a captive audience at that point. Or you're trying to do cool things together, like you're making these you know memories together in the mm-hmm. time you have remaining with her home. Like you might have these conversations each week, like oh, let's if we were going to do something together, what would you be interested in doing? And and you know making a list together of like oh things we want to do this summer, um, you know things that are fun winter activities or whatever. But just having some of these on the schedule, you're more likely to have kind of these good interactions within these um, created adventures as well. Yeah. In fact, I've done two of those. Like one of the things, and I hope she's not listening because then like the jig is up. Um, I've been making sure I'm in the kitchen when she usually comes down for breakfast and like, and I'm just hanging out. Like I'm not using that time to get myself dressed or out. And, you know, she's very independent, wants to eat when she wants, she wants to make her own food. But when I'm there, I find that she sits and we chat and it's really nice. And I also cleared my schedule so that I can drive her to school in the morning when she doesn't want to take the bus. And it becomes this really nice time together. And she DJs and we listen to some music. And we have a little conversation. It's like we both leave for work and school happy. Um, and it's and I'm realizing it's about choosing, like you said, the opportunities that may yield um, quality time. Yeah, no, I think that's that's very smart. And having open space in your schedule means you can seize opportunity in, in whatever form that comes. I mean, it's true at work. Like if an employee wants to come talk about her great business ideas, like you don't want to be, oh, I'll come, come back at 412 when I have an eight-minute window. Like, you know, you, you want to actually be able to have these conversations. And that's really about not overpacking your schedule with the things you don't want to do. Um, I know we've talked about being okay with having a full schedule of things you do want to do, (laughs) um, but one of the ways you can do that is by not putting in stuff that you don't want to do, um, being very careful with that sort of thing. I want to come back to how we figure out what we don't want to do, but first, I just want to note, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM 111, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Laura Vanderkan, who's the author of Off the Clock, Feel Less Busy While Getting More Done. If you have a question about how you're using your time, how you can use it more effectively or Laura's ideas about really how to maximize this time we have and conjure our memories. Um, Give us a ring at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So Laura, talk to me about what we don't do. How do you decide what comes off the list? Well, if if it's something... I think one thing you can think about is approaching your schedule from this perspective of not like what do I like and what do I not like, but just thinking of it, if it was a blank slate, like what would you actually add in now? Um, you know, just because you've been doing something for a long time doesn't mean you have to keep doing it. Uh, just because, you know, your department has had a Tuesday morning meeting every Tuesday since time immemorial doesn't mean you actually have to keep doing that. Uh, so, you know, think about that from the blank slate perspective. What would you actually add into your life? Um, because it creates a higher bar versus, like, getting rid of stuff I already have. Um, it's know. interesting. It's almost taking an innovation approach because um, our listeners know that my, the seven words I hate the most are that's the way we've always done it. And that if you start instead with what are we trying to do, you usually come up with a better solution. And it sounds like we can do that with our time as well. Yeah, and, and, you know, with anything you're doing, ask, well, what is my purpose here? Like, well, why am I doing this? Um, and, you know, if you're satisfied with the answer, then great. Uh, but if, if it's an answer that doesn't feel particularly satisfying to you, then, you know, maybe it's time to rethink that and, and see if maybe you can 
wind it down over the next three to six months. I mean, there's a lot of stuff we can't get rid of immediately, <laughs> um, but but certainly over a couple months, a, a lot of space can open up. We can plan our way out of things. Um, I want to talk about the flip side of the coin, you know, because we've been talking about how we maximize our time, how we are present to feel joy, how we can conjure good memories, because time goes so fast, except time doesn't go quickly when we're suffering. <laughs> yes. And so talk to me about enduring. What do we do when time, when, you know, our hearts are broken, things are hard, and we're actually counting the minutes? Yeah, and I think this feeling of counting minutes is, is what is, is so, you know, tough for people because you know time in a grand sense is limited, and yet you're counting minutes to get through something. Um, and, and that's a really bad place to be in. So, you know, there's anything you can do to move minutes from the sort of enduring to enjoying category. And if not enjoying, maybe tolerating mm-hmm. um, is, is a good idea. I mean, sometimes you can only just get through by counting the minutes. Um, <laughs> right. and, and that's it's good to know. Like, all time passes, right? right. Uh, yeah. and, 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 you know, you will not be probably feeling the same way in, let's say, I don't know, a year. Um, so can you get through the next year? Well, probably, you know, even if you have to count the minutes through a year, it will be over eventually. Um, but you can also say, well, is there anything I can change uh, in this situation? Are there small things I can notice that are cool and maybe sort of put my thoughts on them? Uh, and so if you can sort of take these two strategies and, and see what you can do, um, then, then maybe you'll be able to move some of those, those minutes uh, into the enjoying category. What about like chunking it? I think about now, granted, this was self-imposed suffering um, that ultimately was gratifying when I ran a couple marathons. Um, but, you know, miles 19 on were not pleasant. Mile 23 on was a form of hell. But part of the journey um, was about chunking it out and saying, I'm going to do this two miles at a time. I'm going to do this a mile at a time. I'm going to do it half a mile at a time. And it made it much more manageable so that I got through to the other side and then could get the inspiration of the finish line when it was in sight. Is that a technique that we can apply to tougher times? Oh, definitely. Um, I mean, you know, say you can like just count to 20 over and over again. Sometimes if I'm on a really bumpy flight, I really hate airline turbulence. Um, you know, that I just count to 20 over and over again. And, you know, eventually I count to 20 enough, we'll be through it. Uh, eventually we'll be on the ground, right? So um, you can get through anything just kind of counting over and over and chunking it out that way. But then there's also, you know, cool things you might be seeing that, like, um, you know, maybe you're you're really getting to know somebody you're running with in these last mm-hmm. miles of a marathon. Like going through suffering together with somebody is a way to – bring you closer that there's pretty much nothing else that we'll we'll do that for um or you might notice you know the how water feels when you drink it like is entirely different at mile 23 of a marathon versus like you know just grabbing oh no it's exquisite and precious at mile 23 it's 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 precious and wonderful you can enjoy that wonder um that the sort of small things can become more amazing uh, and you appreciate them more uh, in in sort of difficult circumstances. So that one of the things that we can do is, well, we can't end the suffering. Um, We can navigate it and we can manage ourselves and our experience of it. And while we may not be able to make heartache go away, um, we can calm ourselves and we can comfort ourselves with these kinds of momentary ways of paying attention. Yeah. And and I mean, the crazy thing is emotions change too. Um, I mean, 
you know, psychologists study this, uh, that a lot of uh, even horrible things, like people often sort of within a couple of years are able to sort of be differently. And it's hard to see that in the mm-hmm. moment. Uh, it's hard, it seems very permanent in the moment, but that's usually not the case. Right, because those things feel like they're just taking over our lives. So I have a question about something else that's taking over my life, and I think a lot of ours, and it's email. It feels freaking endless. It's constantly pouring in. I, could, I feel like I could spend 24-7 just answering email. How do, how do you navigate? You must be getting communications from people all over the world, if not the country. How do you navigate it? Well, I think the thing to recognize about email is that it will expand to fill all available space. And so there is no particular hack that will allow you to spend <laughs> less time on email. You just simply have to choose to spend less time on email. Like you choose, like, this is how much time I am willing to spend on it. Uh, if it doesn't get responded to within that time, then I guess it's not going to get responded to. I mean, oh, well, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, I think it's, it's best approached in, in mindful chunks through the day, like, you know, a couple of times, maybe higher number of times for people in certain industries than others. Uh, but, but then being off of it at times, too, instead of letting it just bleed in and out of everything you're doing, because um, that's when you never get focus time for anything else. Yeah, so talk to me a little bit about that focus time. When you look at, when you go back to your data and you see, you know, how you're tracking your own time, not to mention the people whose data you've collected, what can we learn from keeping focus and how our technology affects us? Well, the interesting thing is that if you are truly into a project, like deeply absorbed in something, your email becomes a lot less tempting. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's, you could, you know, we play, we can play defense in the sense of like, you know, put your phone in airplane mode, put it away, or, you know, just choose to check it at certain times. And that's fine. But you can also play offense, too, and be like, well, can I find stuff that I'm so excited about, like that I'm so enjoying that I don't even want to check my email, Right. Um, and if you can do that, like, that's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> right. And you can tease yourself away. And I also find that when I'm not in it constantly and I do kind of like save it, come back to it at the end of the day, make some time that's specifically for email, I tend to respond to them faster. Yeah. I mean, batching anything is generally more efficient than, uh, you know, doing, going in and out and they're like, oh, did I respond to that? Or, and I'm reading this over again because I was in it the last time and yet I'm, I'm looking at my inbox, but I'm not actually dealing with it. So, <laughs> right. uh, yeah, no, I mean, none of that is particularly efficient. Um, I have a question from a listener who just wrote in to Patty. It's Helen from Collingswood. Um, so she asks, how is a man, and she's focusing not on herself, but on her team. Um, as a manager, how do you suggest approaching an employee who's constantly running late? Yeah, I mean, this is, First, I think, you know, being very clear about your expectation. Um, I mean, we feel like, you know, shouldn't this person know (laughs) that this is massively ticking me off, that they're never in their seat? (laughs) But, you know, make sure they know exactly what the expectation is. Like, it's like, if I'm leading a meeting, I want you all in your chairs at the time I walk in the room. Um, That's something that I find is, uh, you know, respectful to your manager. I would like you to do that. You haven't done that lately. Can you tell me why? And the person would be like, oh, you know, stuff took longer than I thought. I was like, well, okay, let's talk about that. Why did it, you know, how long do you think it takes you to get from here? So maybe you should start winding that down a little bit earlier. 
But, you know, maybe you also find out that sometimes they're doing something really important right before, mm-hmm. like they didn't want to get off the phone with a really big client to come listen to you talk about, you know, staff fridge policies. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm not saying that's the case for our, our Collingswood listener, but, uh, you know, I, I think that's why it's important to have this communication, too, because, you know, sometimes it's also something else, like that the person would have had to take a train an hour earlier in order to be there at the, you know, not be five minutes late and if that's the case well maybe you could work something out right like maybe they don't have to be there um five minutes uh, you know early for something if it's something you can control now you obviously talk about situations where it is very important to be on time um you know and and say like in terms of your career advancement i don't want to put you in front of a client if i think you'll be late right, right. like that's not something i'm willing to risk so if i think you're going to do that i won't do it and so if you're concerned about your career you better figure that out um, but I think that's, again, that's something you need to have a conversation about expectations. Right, because I can be late for a whole lot of things, but I know I can't be late for radio. We start at a certain time. We start at a certain time. <laughs> you got to show air. up. You're not on. So. <laughs> right. But also, the, opening those lines of communication can reveal really important things. I forgot who it was that was one of our guests, but she told the story of um, one – she was faced with this experience of an early morning meeting. And her boss didn't understand that what it meant was that she couldn't get her daughter to school. And there was just no way she could make the morning meeting. And she was really frightened about speaking up because it was not only a culture that she thought was not welcoming to the working mother, but it was a long time ago. And she was nervous about it. But then there was just no two ways around it. And by talking to her boss, he said, I'm so glad you told me. I had no idea. We'll move the meeting time. Yeah. And, I mean, that's, that, that could be a positive outcome. Obviously, it could have gone another way, too, <laughs> yeah. but you never know until you bring it up. So why suffer in silence, you know, and, and then or, – or worse, like quit because you think, oh, it couldn't work. I mean, boy, if you're going to quit, like, please have the conversation um, right. or, or try working how you want and seeing how it goes uh, rather, rather than just assuming it can't work out. Right, and if one of the things that you want to do – and I think, Helen, this is, you know, as you start, make a safe place to talk about it so that you can hear what's going on in your employee's life. And then the other part of it is if this is the kind of employee that you want to cultivate and develop, um, breaking it down by – by going backwards, it sounds like can be, I know that I do it and it's helping me be late less. And Laura, it sounds like starting with, you know, when do you have to be there? What are the things that you have to do? And building in a cushion and helping the employee think this through may actually get them to look at their own timing differently. Yeah, because, I mean, time management is a skill like any other. I mean, we think we may think of it as a life skill, like, geez, I don't have to teach my employees how to tie their shoes. Why should I have to teach them how to do this? But it doesn't – not everyone has, you know, come in with these these skills. And so, you know, if you had a great employee who just, like, couldn't really figure out how to use Excel very well, like, you'd, te- you'd teach them, right? right? And, like, you'd try not to make a big deal about it. Like, too bad they didn't learn it earlier, but, like, you're going to teach them because it's worth – doing in order to make sure that they're bringing their talents to bear on other things. And so the same thing, like if you've got somebody who's really creative, awesome, wonderful, you love the work they do, and they're annoyingly 10 minutes late to everything, then talk about that, like why that annoys you, why you want them to stop, what you're going to make happen for them to try to figure that out. Absolutely. Well, I got to tell you, we love talking to you, Laura, and that you've given our time to us. If people want to check out all the good things you're doing, where can they find you? Well, you can come visit my website, which is lauravandercam.com, just my name. I, I blog there. Uh, I'd love to have people listen to my podcast, Best of Both Worlds, which is very much aimed at working parents, um, often working mothers. This tends to be the bulk of our listeners. We love talking <laughs> about how 
work and life fits together. And, yeah, please check out Off the Clock, which is out May 29. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And I'd like to also thank our fantastic producer, Patty Hall, as well as our associate producer and beloved sound engineer, Danielle Bruno. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. You can follow me at Laura Zarrow. You can also follow us at Biz Radio 111. Um, and, you know, if you hear this in replay or you have some questions you wanted to ask Patty, give us a, write to us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. We'll talk to you soon. Free.